Thank you for tuning in to ReachMD XM157 as we present this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Anger is a naturally arising emotion that is sometimes present during the clinical visit. This can create one of the most challenging situations for the clinician, as anger is extremely threatening to productive care. The seasoned clinician will be aware and take care of his or her own anger if it arises, as well as learn how to assist patients with their anger. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from New Haven, Connecticut, is my guest, Dr. Andrea Asnes. Dr. Asnes is a pediatrician and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine. She is the author of the recent article in Pediatrics in Review entitled The Difficult Pediatric Encounter, Insights and Strategies for the Pediatric Practitioner. Welcome, Dr. Asnes. Thank you. Dr. Asnes, there's nothing like anger to destroy communication and get in the way of good care, is there? I completely agree. Patient's anger is one of the more unsettling responses to to deal with, especially at the outset of a clinical encounter. When patients approach us in an angry stance, we are very tempted to become defensive and sometimes even lash out at patients in response. Once this occurs and an oppositional interaction has begun, it is very hard to diffuse the tension in the room and regain what should be the tenor of a patient-doctor visit, which is one of caring and concern on the doctor's part and a feeling of being helped on the patient's part. In your article, you've presented some typical difficult scenarios that clinicians might encounter, including a few involving anger. Let's start with one involving justifiable anger on the part of a parent. You are seeing well children in the office this afternoon. You had 10 newborns at the hospital this morning, and one who decompensated while you examined her had to be admitted to the newborn intensive care unit. The traffic was terrible on the way back to the office. It is now 2 p.m., and your first appointment was scheduled for 12.30 p.m. You enter the examination room to find a red-faced mother with her sobbing two-year-old. I think your listeners who provide care in multiple settings, that being hospital-based care and office care, will find the scenario very familiar. We wear many hats in our practices, and sometimes, through no fault of our own, one of those settings commands our attention at the expense of another setting, and not just a setting, but other patients. I think when hearing this scenario, providers think, well, that makes sense. The person in this, you know, the doctor, the provider in this scenario that you have presented did exactly the right thing. They focused on a sicker patient, and yes, a well patient had to wait, but this was good medicine. And they're absolutely correct about that. I would not question the way this example provider structured his or her day at all. However, I think it's important to realize that someone did pay a price for managing and triaging time appropriately. And in this scenario, that person is the mother and also the two-year-old who's been waiting for a long time in an uncomfortable situation. The problem in this case is that an apology seems kind of unfounded given that the practitioner has behaved appropriately. However, someone has been inconvenienced, and I think recognizing that paves the way to a beneficial encounter, whether it happens on that day, an hour and a half after the scheduled appointment, or at a different day. So I think the first step that this provider could have done, and it's not mentioned in the, in the vignette, but 
the provider could certainly make a call. It doesn't usually happen that we get busy and we can't make a phone call. Even with a sick patient, we may be you know, involved in a resuscitation at the hospital and a transfer, but it only takes a minute to pick up a phone and call office staff and say, listen, there's no way I'm going to make my 1230 appointment. Can you please tell Mrs. Smith about my delay and offer her a chance to reschedule or at least let her know that I'm likely to be late, she could leave and come back. This is just politeness and something that we may not be thinking about when we're anxiously watching the course of a sick newborn, but that can really stop trouble in the making. It also seems that it would be difficult to keep track of all these things and put in that phone call. Would you recommend that pediatricians have an office policy where staff looks at the clock and the schedule and can see that the practitioner's not there and that they should be offering to reschedule after a certain point. I think that makes a lot of sense. Furthermore, the office staff can place a quick call to the provider and say, how's it looking? I have someone here, it's been half an hour. Do you think you're going to be five minutes or are you going to be an hour? I know we're all, it's, all, it's very hard for all of us to judge our time and be able to say exactly when we'll be free. But I think the call from the office could maybe prompt a realistic assessment of what's in front of us, and then we can advise our office staff. But I think a policy might be very useful. I know there's a price to be paid for that, and some people listening are saying, sure, but the rescheduled appointment may not happen for six weeks. And practically speaking, how long would you recommend that it is okay to keep patients waiting before you offer to reschedule? That's a very interesting question. I think some people come to the doctor's office and expect to wait, and they think it's okay. I really, it's hard for me to give a specific number there. I think there probably is a certain grace or courtesy period of between 15 minutes and a half an hour of waiting time. After that, I do think it becomes excessive and that other alternatives should be offered to patients and families. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Andrea Asnes, pediatrician and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine. And we are discussing the difficult pediatric encounter, in particular, angry parents who've been kept waiting in the pediatrician's office. Dr. Asnes, Do you think that it would help to give an explanation to waiting patients as to why there's a long delay? I actually think that the explanation matters much less to families than something significantly more useful, and that is an apology. And I found in my own practice and in teaching residents who are learning to become pediatricians that this is very hard to do, especially when, as we've discussed, there's really not been a mistake made here. There's only been appropriate care provided. But I think our instinct in the situation is to explain and sort of go off on a, really, like, this is why I was late, and this is the patient who was so much sicker than your child. And I think that asks a lot of the poor parent and child who were waiting for an hour and a half. I think that they may be able to be empathetic towards the sick newborn, but it was their day that was derailed by this delay. I wonder if that might be another job for staff to kind of pave the way before the apology from the clinician, explaining so that people understand it's not just that they've been ignored, but that something very important is going on and that they are important to the clinician. But I think there should never be an explanation in the absence of an apology. I think if the if the office staff can say, Dr. Aznis is delayed because she's taking care of a sick patient, but she asked me to tell you how very sorry she is about this delay. She knows your time is valuable and offer you potentially a chance to reschedule or at least an accurate assessment of how long it's going to be so you can plan. Here's another case where the anger is not justified by the clinician's behavior but is still present during the interaction. Here we have a 13-year-old boy 
in your office for a weight check. His body mass index is 35, and he has gained four pounds since his last visit with you. You have advised dietary changes and exercises in the past. You report his weight to the patient and his mother and ask how the family is doing with implementing your recommendations. The child tells you that he has been doing his best, but reports being limited by the amount of junk food that's tempting him in the house. After this statement, his mother shakes her head and stares at you. She angrily says, you doctors think you're so great. What do you know about putting a healthy meal on the table? I make sure my children don't go hungry. Sure, they snack, but I put dinner on the table every night, and I'm not going to deprive them. What do we do with that? These outbursts can be very dangerous because it this came out of nowhere. The provider in this setting just walked in and pretty much got bombarded with a very negative stance and really an attack from this patient's mother. And this is where defensiveness becomes very tempting. It's very easy to say, listen, you know, I don't have to spend so much time on my patients and worry about these problems. I have other patients who are sicker than you, which would clearly be a mistake in this situation. I always counsel my trainees when they're hit with this kind of unexpected attack, the best thing they can first do is to just pause, take a breath, and just think about it for a minute. Chances are this parent is not angry so much at the practitioner, but has really got something else going on, which is important to identify. So it's hard not to take the bait when provoked, but it's our responsibility, I think, not to, and to gather more information and and measure our reaction according to what we find out. I ask residents in this situation when they're bombarded and other colleagues to just stop, breathe, sit down, Take a physical stance with the, with the patient that's inviting, that's not walking or pacing or standing over the patient in a demanding fashion, but rather to sit down and say, okay, I can see clearly that you're upset. You know, let's, please tell me so I can understand why you're so upset. And that's a question instead of a response. And it's, it makes it possible for this parent to share with you where this intense outburst is really coming from. That advice for an internal pause, that is just an excellent little piece of information to really always carry and keep in mind for the clinician? Well, I I always try to do this in my own personal interactions with my own family, but I can't say I'm as successful in that environment, but I think it is a useful thing to be able to do. Right. And I'm sure in the hectic day of seeing patient after patient, that notion might feel expensive, but it's probably not in the long run. We are giving to our patients sort of sometimes for a number of hours and a number of days and It's hard to take responsibility for fixing these situations when we didn't provoke them. We feel like we give a lot every day, but that's probably not the best thought to have in mind when when initiating an encounter like this one. And what has been your experience when you take that pause and ask that question of your patients who are upset for other reasons than what's going on right there in in the room? If I really can pause and if I really can adopt a giving and generous stance to my patients, express through body language my real concern for them in spite of the fact that they may have just said something that was a little provocative, and I ask in a way that conveys my true interest in what they have to say, I can learn any number of really fascinating things from my patients and their parents about what is really going on. If I can really convey the message that I want to hear it, they will tell me, and the answers can be quite surprising. In this scenario, sometimes the hidden agenda and what provoked the anger is that the last visit I told them all about fresh fruits and vegetables and 
all sorts of things that everyone listening knows have gotten extremely expensive recently and that fresh foods are, are not as cheap as some of the center aisles of the grocery store packaged and processed foods that we know are dangerous to children who have overweight issues. And what's really going on is that the parent can't afford to shop the way I told her to, and that can be humiliating to say in an office visit. If I can open myself up to really hear in a caring way, I may get that message from a mother who says, you know, you gave me that list, but my food budget will not begin to cover that, and it's hard for me to tell you this. And that's something that I can work with them on, hopefully, and, and help them to make more economical, healthy choices. And I try to, in, to keep my sensitivity to those issues high, but I can forget sometimes, and so can other people. Well, thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Andrea Asmus, pediatrician and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine. Thank you for the great advice, Dr. Asmus. Thank you for having me. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM 157 presents a special series focused on children's health. To download podcasts of this series, visit us at ReachMD.com.